Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Transfer Window, the podcast which brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis on all the topics you're discussing in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is the... the Maestro himself, Duncan Castles. Uh, very busy weekend of football throughout Europe. As always, as you know, we like to start with some news and um, we can bring you Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's three-man wish list for a striker in January. The Manchester United manager um, has mentioned um, that uh, before uh, in his pretty much press conference that he would like to buy a striker in January, having lost, I say lost in inverted commas, Romelu Lukaku and Alexis Sanchez, because that was certainly a bit careless when you're not replacing them. But the three names that the transfer window has been told from a very reliable source at the Old Trafford Club are, in no particular order it has to be said, because we will discuss the um, practicalities um, and the feasibility of each of them, as we always do. Uh, RB Leipzig's uh, young striker Timo Werner, Lyon's Moussa Dembele, who obviously was once of Celtic, and Barcelona's Usman Dembele, who hasn't really had a bit of a nightmare time since his uh, transfer from Borussia Dortmund. Um, Duncan, you watch Manchester United and analyse them um, on a week-by-week, day-by-day basis. Who do you think would be the most feasible stroke, best suited of those three players to this current Manchester United team? Well, you're looking, I mean, Osman Dambelli as a striker is an interesting concept. I, I think that's more driven by um, Edward were knowing that Dembele is on the market, knowing that Barcelona have still got to raise funds um, from selling players uh, in the January window to uh, balance their FFP accounts for the season. Um I think it's a bit, it's kind of a, a hybrid between his desire to to sign high-profile players um, and someone who has a huge amount of pace and is relatively young, which fits the the Gunnar Solskjaer rebuild model. Um, but a huge number of complications there in terms of the the player's um, attitude is, you know. Uh, historic issues with timekeeping and looking after himself physically, um, eating properly, sleeping properly, the, the, the number of uh, muscular injuries he has had, which uh, people working with him attribute to um, his failures in those domains. Um, Duncan, no, just, just to um, you know, add into that, uh, forgive me for interrupting, but he didn't appear in Barcelona's matchday squad last weekend because of an eighth, and I say again, an eighth hamstring problem since his time there, since 2016. That does tell you quite a bit about the unreliability of the uh, soft muscle tissue injuries that he has sustained. Yeah, and, you know, we, we've had Graham Hunter on the podcast talking about Dembele um, and, the, you know, the supreme talent that he is, but the, the question marks over whether he can convert that talent into effectiveness on the pitch because of these problems. And not it's not just... Um, the sort of physical aspects it's also from a from a personality and um, following instructions perspective that, that there are question marks over him so you'd have to say that would be a gamble an expensive gamble and given that you've got a team that um, 
which has disciplinary issues internal to it with you know Paul Pogba at the fore of those and has uh, a notorious run of muscular injuries under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's high-intensity training regime doesn't really seem the best place to take him to. Timo Werner's an, an interesting proposal. Um, he has signed a new contract at uh, Leipzig uh, over the summer, but um, our understanding is that that was very much a, um, a deal to increase his salary while keeping him at the club for an extra season with the perspective of selling him Going forward, um, huge degree of interest in him at Bayern Munich. Many people expected him to move there last summer. Um, so a player who is definitely accessible for the right amount of money and um, and is a, is a, a proper goal scorer uh, and would have add pace um, to the attack. Um, so I think is actually a very good fit um, in principle with the way Solskjaer has the team playing. And Moussa Dembele would, as we've talked about, it's a club that Dembele is interested in moving to. It's a team, a scouting department that has monitored Dembele for years, um, you know, since before he was at Celtic, uh, identifying him as a potential Premier League number nine as his career developed. His career has developed. He has become um, an important player at Lyon. Um, I think he would be interested in that move. I think it would be a very sensible move in a lot of ways for United because it would give them a different kind of forward, a, you know, a player who does have height and is able to score a, a range of goals and play in different ways and, and solve different match situations. So at the moment, United have an attack where they're, they're very much counter-attacking side. They have a group of strikers who don't like playing with their back to goal don't like playing with the ball in the air. Um, if you get them and are able to feed them in the correct fashion, which is uh, running at the opposition with the ball in front of them, they, they are very dangerous. But um, with the exception of Martial, not brilliant finishers. I think Martial has, when he's concentrated, has the ability to finish well. Uh, I don't think anyone else does. Um, and, I, you know, refer you to Josie Mourinho talking about Marcus Rashford in some detail on his last Sky appearance and he, he kind of broke down where Mar where um, Rashford was as a striker and, and suggested that um, he was going to score more goals coming off that wide um, position in the attack, either the left-hand side or the right-hand side, than he would do as a centre-forward. Um, so Dembele would, would solve that and I think would be accessible for them. I think they could convince Dembele to come to the club if they made him the right proposal, but I think he would be very expensive, particularly to get him out of Lyon uh, during the season. Um, I know that the, the president there values the player highly and he sees a player who, um, if he continues to have another good season in French football and in the Champions League um, this year, would expect his value to increase markedly by the end of the season and and, um, and would expect to, to take a, a, a significant transfer fee from him either this coming summer or in another year's time. So to get that player in January would be expensive from, uh, from a transfer fee point of view. I think it's interesting on two fronts here, Duncan, with regards to um, what Solskjaer has been saying and and what he's saying he's intending to do. Um, 
First, I think we have to consider the comments after Mason Greenwood uh, scored um, in the Europa League against Astana, I believe it was, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, when United were facing you know, a dispiriting and potentially embarrassing result. Um, yes, they've had injuries to Martial and to Rashford, but all of a sudden Greenwood was, was, was being promoted as being the future of Manchester United, etc., etc., he would, you know, he'd be given the chances to come through. Since then, he suffered an illness, which has seen him miss uh, a game. But I wonder what Mason Greenwood feels like when he sees comments from Solskjaer now saying, "Yes, striker is definitely the and creativity." He said, "Not just striker, striker and creative play is the priority for a January transfer." It's not quite the message he was giving two weeks ago um, to Greenwood. And not quite the message that Manchester United fans were probably expecting um, after his original comments. Now, I'm not saying that he's not entitled to change his mind. What I'm saying is, is that this seems to be a kind of typical Manchester United lurch from one potential policy to another. And the second thing I would say about this is, um, in terms of uh, you setting out and giving any particular club who might sell you a player an advantage... The fact that you're setting this up before we've even got into October to basically tell the market, we're looking for a striker and Manchester United and we've got loads of cash. Um, it doesn't look like good business sense to me. Well, I, I don't see anything negative in the way that Solskjaer's talked about Greenwood. Um, I think he's always been positive about players' abilities and I think he's been talking quite sensibly about the, the necessity to manage his introduction into the into the first team um, and not to overplay him. So to he, he, he has praised him on multiple occasions as being the best finisher of the forwards he has at the club, which is you know high praise indeed for a 17-year-old who hadn't uh, started a, a Premier League game before um, Solskjaer arrived there. And uh, and, I, and I think it's also there would be a temptation there um, what for Solskjaer to overplay Greenwood, to put him in, in the line because he has scored on those two starts, albeit against um, weaker opposition. But I think you can see in the way he's played that he does have that ability that Solskjaer is talking about. He does look like a proper finisher and, and, and the ability to shoot off both feet it gets shots away very quickly. Um, almost at unexpected moments is a huge asset um, and to have that at his age that's not something that should ever go away so they, they have I think there in Greenwood they have a, a they finally have an academy player who you can see being a um, regular starter for Manchester United for an entire career if um, things go well in terms of injury and they handle them the right way um, and I, I think You've seen Solskjaer playing the youth card. You've seen him, for example, last game of last season, put out six players from midfield to attack who were all academy graduates at Manchester United and, and was obviously looking for that line of, um, I started six academy players and we won this game at the end of the season. It backfired on him in that they lost at home to Cardiff. So he's gone down that line. He's talked about, uh, bring, uh, promoting from academy many times, he's put people like Angel Gomez and Tahith Chong in the starting lineup. All of these things um, 
get garnered praise from the fans. He made Axel Tuanzebe captain for the Rochdale match and is just his seventh star. Again, for me, that's a, a PR move more than anything else. So it would be easy for him to, to throw Greenwood in there and um, and go down that line. I think it's actually a good thing that he's caveating it and saying, I've got to, I've got to look after the player's development. I don't want to put too much expectation on him because we know how easy uh, it, it is for a player to be built up into something um, far beyond his actual level of achievement uh, as a teenager in a prominent Premier League side and when he's English, you know, the, 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 the acclaim and the status and the expectation of him being an answer not just for the first team but also for the England national team um, comes quickly and can be very dangerous to players. So I wouldn't criticise Solskjaer for that at all. I think you're right um, that saying we have to recruit in uh, attack and we need to do it soon and we're probably going to do it in January uh, obviously alerts uh, the market and uh, and demonstrates that the manager himself uh, is prioritising it so we'll probably um, increase fees for whoever they decide to sign I think it's it's telling that they've got themselves into a situation where Solskjaer is now realised he has to improve and attack so quickly in, in the season. I think it's just, it, it is a response to realising that uh, having Martial and Rashford as your only two experienced strikers in the squad is a mistake. Um, seeing from being on the bench with those players as his attacking options and uh, in several games only having... Um, Greenwood as a, as a substitute if he needed to change the match and not having a player who can play a different way. So he's, he's let Lukaku go and not replaced with someone who can do the equivalent things, which is play with his back to goal, be strong in the air, bully defenders physically. I think we're actually sitting on the bench and, and having match situations where the, the standard uh, plan has not been working. Um, all of this predictable, but Clearly, Solskjaer didn't predict it and didn't understand how difficult it was going to be. And now he's seen how difficult he's going to be. And he's thinking, I need these solutions because I'm not going to get enough points uh, to get this team into the Champions League without having an alternative. And, it, and the argument he put out in his latest press conference that there was no point signing someone unless they were a player for the future for Manchester United. Again, that sounds fine. And it says, oh, we're being strategic. We're only buying players in um, if they fit into our wonderful long-term plan for getting back to playing Manchester United football and, and dominating in England again. Um, but actually, what's the problem with signing a, if you have to, sign a forward for one season who's a backup to your, your principal choices and gives you tactical alternatives, you know, a, a Fernando Llorente type or equivalent who doesn't expect to be a starter, probably isn't very expensive, um, to to play not going to be a superstar for Manchester United but not you're not expecting him to be a superstar you're signing him as a squad player other teams do that all the time and other teams do it as part of their strategic long term build they'll have their strategic long term build going on but have a, a utility short term solution answer um, as they need it um, and 
really Manchester United, Solskjaer, who's being praised by the board for his role in summer transfers, are saying what a good window they've had and even suggesting that they might not need to go down the, the full technical director route because the, the recruitment under Solskjaer has been so good. Actually, you, you, you break it down and you look at where they've left themselves at this early point in the season with, as you say, the manager going into press conference saying, yeah, we're going to have to recruit an attack next time around. It's not been smart recruitment at all. Well, that is interesting. That is an ironic um, statement, isn't it? Because uh, the information is that the board and Edward Wood in particular have now um, gone the other way and said that Solskjaer's involvement in transfers, Duncan, has been very positive um, the way that he um, identified the players that were needed to be brought in. And, and I don't think anyone will quibble that Warba Sacra has been impressive. Um, Harry Maguire, I think, is still in a settlement period uh, in terms of um, his role at the club. But um, it's it's ironic, I think, in the sense that we're only, as I said, we're not even October yet, and Solskjaer's flagging up that they need to recruit either goals stroke creativity um Werner for me is is the one that is most interesting because he has proven over the last two years in the Bundesliga to be prolific in terms of goals and goal involvement including assists this year alone has seven goals in eight games including two in the Champions League five and six in the Bundesliga uh he has started every game completed 93 percent of minutes as well he's a player who basically I'm told is very straightforward just wants to get on with his game, just wants to score goals and create goals. Um, someone who, you have to say, uh, Solskjaer obviously was kind of characterised as a super sub, but he had that kind of steely professionalism about him, Duncan, whereby he wanted to affect the game in every minute that he played. And certainly that's what Timo Werner does. So I'd be very interested to see if Manchester United try to steal um, Werner out of RB Leipzig uh, away from Bayern Munich in January by paying possibly over the odds for the player. Although Leipzig themselves have had a good start in the Champions League campaign. So if they go into the knockout stages after the new year, we'd be very, I think, um, reticent about allowing them to leave. Well, he, he has admirers elsewhere. We know Bayern Munich like the player. What would be interesting is if Manchester United decide that is the player we want and go after him. Um, whether they, they can beat the opposition to get him. So if they go down to head-to-head -head with someone like Bayern, who see that he will move because a club with the money um, required to do the deal are going to do it, and therefore they have to act themselves. If it's put on the table to Werner, would you rather go to Bayern Munich or would you rather go to Manchester United or another um, important club, which one would he choose? Because that, that would be a marker of where... Manchester United are perceived as being by the kind of players that they should be attempting to recruit to get part to be a part of this rebuild. And I think the other thing we should know, and which has happened in the last week, is that the club is briefing now that the, the rebuild under Solskjaer or the rebuild under Ed Woodward and, and, and they hope to be sustained under Solskjaer will be a three-year process, which... Um, <laughs> ties in with uh, the Paul Scholes, um, Gary Neville, um, precious one analysis of, of Solskjaer that he will require four or five transfer windows to fix the squad. But I think it's, it's quite remarkable that, um, that the club are now 
kind of openly putting it out um, that they don't see themselves as competing for major trophies for the Premier League and the Champions League again for another three years. Um, I, I struggle to think of a club of Manchester United's dimension and we're talking about a team that has consistently been in the top two clubs in the world for uh, revenue, you know, cash available to build their squads with that has ever um, gone into a rebuild process suggesting and briefing that it would take three years for them to get back of the top game. I, I can't think of one. I don't know if you can. No, I don't see it elite clubs in Europe, Duncan. But again, given the chaos uh, at, at Manchester United since Sir Alex Ferguson's retirement in 2013, maybe we should be should we be giving them credit for the notion that they're if if it's true, and of course this is a result based uh, industry in football, and therefore you know Solskjaer, it's overall saying idealistically he'd be given three years, but if results aren't good, he will be sacked. But is there any credit to be given to them for saying, okay, you know what? We've made a mess of it. We're now mea culpa. And we're saying, you have our faith to rebuild this club and we will give you the financial support and also the um, support behind the scenes to do that. Um, There's no problem with them putting their faith in an individual or a couple of individuals to do the rebuild. and, And obviously the the strategic way to do it would be to get a very competent technical director in to take that element of the role away from uh, what you have to say has been a very incompetent chief executive in Ed Woodward um, and and hand it to a specialist who has the contacts, the experience and the eye and uh, negotiating skills to do these things properly, coupled with a coach who trusted in that technical director or a technical director who trusted in that coach um, and then saying, uh, here is the resource and here are the targets. Our target is to be competing for Premier League and Champions League in three years' time. We're giving you this budget uh, based on our over £600 million annual revenues in which to reach it. I think that would be a very attractive proposal to the top people in the game if you said to them, this is, this is what we're offering you. We're going to give you the time and we, we're going to trust in you to get there. Um, to do that with Solskjaer is bizarre um, because, he, as we've said many times, he doesn't have the CV to be um, at this level of club. He's got nothing in his career has demonstrated he is the coach ready to, to undertake a rebuild like that. His results don't show it. You're talking about a team that finished second in the Premier League this season. Uh, before Solskjaer came in. And albeit uh, the manager at the time says that was the greatest achievement of his career to get them to second. They've dropped far, far off second now under Solskjaer. And you've got Solskjaer saying um, he hopes he can get them into the top four this season, but not guaranteeing it. So the trajectory is downwards. Um, and, and I think it's only because of this downward trajectory with the manager of their choice in place, that they're getting away with um, a plan that is it's going to take three years to fix that. I, any Anyone actually stepping outside it would say, well, you've got the wrong coach there. Um, yes, you need to invest. Yes, you need to change things. But you have to get the right staff in to do that. And that's going to be technical director, coach, who have demonstrated their ability to do that job well. 
and then and then have faith in them. And and by the way, you probably don't need three years anyway if you get the right people in those positions. Very true. I'd agree with that. I mean, look at the way Leicester City were turned around into being relegation survivors to Premier League champions just three years ago under the great Claudio Ranieri. Um, so yeah, it's true. These things um, don't necessarily equate to success, um, despite the support or resources offered to the manager, albeit promised. And as I said, if results change, then manager changes as well. Uh, and indeed, Solskjaer himself has been put under pressure in the last few days uh, with um, mentions of the likes of Max Allegri being obviously available, having left Juventus um, and able to come in and take control should United's results get worse in the next few weeks. One manager, Duncan, who we've been putting under scrutiny over the last, I guess, five to six weeks is Zindin Zidane. He's had a decent last eight days, uh, culminating in a draw in the Madrid derby. However, his situation at the Santiago Bernabeu is not necessarily as solid as perhaps some people think. It's something we've talked about a lot on the podcast. And you had a very insightful and analytical story in the Sunday Times where you um, said that Jose Mourinho is effectively now waiting um, under instruction uh, for Zidane to be sacked and that he would be the first choice to replace him. Yeah, and this this is something we talked about in the podcast and identified that Mourinho was an obvious candidate to replace Zidane. Zidane's uh, relationship with Perez is damaged um, according to number of well-placed sources at Madrid, um, his time is limited simply by how long he can keep results going. Those, as you say, he's had a, a good away win at Sevilla, beat Osasuna last week and then managed to get a draw out of um, the derby against Atletico, albeit somewhat fortunately. And he's bought himself time off the back of that. But everyone I speak to um, with those contacts in Madrid are saying he will only stay in place as long as he can keep those results going and uh, the problems internally with the squad are such that no one really expects him to be able to do that. Um, therefore, a succession plan has been put in place. Um, Jose Mourinho is very prominent in that, still has a very good relationship with Florentino Perez, who sees him as a man who can come in and sort the dressing room out rapidly and uh, add a lot of tactical expertise that would um, to the, the playing of matches, which is something that Zidane lacks. The, the missing part of the jigsaw was whether Mourinho would be prepared to go back to Madrid, given um, the trauma that was associated with working there um, last time after he'd won um, the league, taking the title off Pep Guardiola's Barcelona, seen Guardiola quit and exit um, Spanish football as a result of it. And then... Um, not getting the backing he expected from the club and, and the dressing room being allowed to um, assert their power um, and eventually choosing um, to leave Madrid and, and go back to English football with Chelsea. Um, I'm told he is ready to go back. Um, he is, as we have seen again and again and again, when he talks in public, 
uh, underlining the fact that he miss, misses football, misses being in the dugout, wants to be making decisions again. I'm told the calculation is that this is a job of such stature and uh, an ability to go back and win titles again um, and uh, essentially prove um, how good he is as a manager that he feels that he cannot um, turn it down should, if as expected, it become available for him. So he's, he's now ready to take that job. I, I'm told that um, he has uh, put off um, some commercial opportunities and some other invitations um, to be involved in, in football, um, not managerial roles, but uh, kind of t- uh, discussion uh, sessions, etc., on the basis that um, he um, is holding himself ready to to start working again. So I think that that tells you um, that this will not take long to happen um, once the results change. If and once the results change again, it's it's at that level where. Mourinho is ready to go back there and uh, and Perez wants him to go back there. Well, the intriguing thing about this, Duncan, of course, is that um, despite the protests and some criticism, cynicism about Mourinho amongst um, the Madridista uh, about his last spell there, he has maintained a very positive and close relationship with the president, Florentino Perez, who, as we know, Ultimately, regardless of what the manager wants, makes the decisions. Um, a former teammate of Zidane, who I spoke to in the last few days, did describe uh, to me that uh, Zidane had said to him when he returned to the club in March of this year that he'd been given express promises and very, very detailed reassurances about what his mandate was, um, who he could get rid of, who he could recruit, etc., etc. And um, look, this could be someone making an excuse for poor results or whatever. Um, and I'm not, uh, I'm not going to deny that. This is a subjective view given by someone close to Zidane, who is obviously telling me Zidane's point of view. But those promises weren't met. Now, we know that when Mourinho left Real Madrid, one of the reasons he did so is because he felt his own authority had been undermined to a certain degree because he wanted to resolve certain problems he felt were there at the club. One, of course, was in uh, the, tra- the transfer policy, which he wasn't fully in control of. Secondly, he felt there were maybe two, certainly, influences in the dressing room, which he felt were um, both negative and needed to be taken away if he was to create a dressing room which was going to be united and committed to him and his cause. What do you think would convince Mourinho that this would be different second time round? Well, I, I think uh, the briefing on Zidane is accurate. Um, Zidane took the job on the condition that he would be given, I'm told, £200 million worth of the summer's transfer budget on his under his own control um, to decide on changes in the team. I know there were several players that he wanted to move out of the squad that he wasn't allowed to move out of the squad. And I know that he pushed to the very end to sign Paul Pogba and was essentially um, 
told that isn't going to happen. The Florentino Perez did not push in the same way to to make it happen. As we talked about in the podcast, there was uh, the, the 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 seriousness of intent was never present um, enough to to make that deal go through. And and I think it would be a very um, realistic theory to ask yourself um, if Florentino Perez, when Pogba was supposed to be well, was the prime target of his existing coach? Was he thinking that the worst thing I can do if uh, if I'm not sure about this coach and, and uh, ready considering replacing him with Jose Mourinho would be to sign Paul Bogba and bring him to the club? Um, we saw that didn't happen. If you look at Mourinho's history, he, he, Duncan, hang on a second. To, I'm going to have to interrupt you because I, I think you've just you just like kind of created a little conspiracy theory there that our listeners will love. Are you saying that Florentino Perez did not sign Paul Pogba because he already had in mind for Jose Mourinho to return and he knew that it would be difficult to get Mourinho there if Pogba had become a Real Madrid player? I think that would, I'm saying that would be a very realistic <sighs> question to ask. Love that, love that. So let's, let's just be clear. So Zidane and Mourinho disagree on Pogba, but there's one player whose name shall never be uttered in negativity, uh, Santiago Bernabeu. Um, <laughs> Mourinho wanted rid of and didn't manage to get rid of. Would that be a make or break for Mourinho? Because we know that Ramos is someone who has massive influence in that dressing room and Mourinho did not get on with them towards the end of his time there. I, I don't know, um, but I do know that Florentino Perez was um, actively trying to get Sergio Ramos out of the club last season. So, um, you know, you can put two and two together there, if, if you like. Um, and Ramos, of course, um, made sure that didn't happen, used his power in the dressing room. I mean, you ask about the, the quandary Mourinho is in, and, and look, you've got to remember, he's been here before. He went back to Chelsea when he had a job offer from Manchester United, when Sir Alex Ferguson had asked him to go from Madrid to Manchester United to be his replacement. He chose Chelsea instead, um, partly for family reasons, partly because he felt he had unfinished business there, which was winning the Champions League. And partly, I think, because of the, um, the ability to say, look, he asked me back after he sacked me. There's an element of pride in it. Um, I know he had people at the time advising him it was a bad idea to go back to Chelsea because Roman Abramovich would not have changed. And you have to say those people were right. Um, after he won the title at Chelsea um, and wanted to instigate um, significant changes to the defence in particular, wanted to, to bring in a quick centre-back to allow the team to play um, higher up the field against top quality opposition that they were restricted because they had to basically cover for John Terry's lack of pace and had to play deep because of that against good opponents and he felt they couldn't win the Champions League without adding that type of player to the squad he asked them to do that they didn't do that it was back to the old story of we determine who the, the transfer to thank you for winning the league now we determine who the transfer targets are we actually think this squad is quite good so you should be able to win the Champions League with a few tweaks so he's had this situation before and he chose to go back um, and we've seen him talking about 
after he was dismissed by Manchester United, giving interviews where he's emphasised the importance of club structure and how he wanted to work in a place where he could be on board with the structure of the club and know they, they would have a mutual target and, and support each other towards it. Um, you've got to ask a question of, regardless of the relationship with Florentino Perez, which is obviously a bonus to him coming in. And for the early period, you've got to ask the question of whether he would have that sustained support from the structure of Madrid, given their history of switching to the president's um, particular obsession at the time uh, when it suits the uh, president to do so, particularly when things have gone well. That's when the president tends to take more control. Um, you would expect that to happen again at Madrid, but um, he's in a position where I'm told he's ready to go back there. And, and uh, you know, you, I think you, you'll, you also have to factor in that what he's talked about, which is this real um, sense of missing, being involved in football, missing going into the pre-season, missing designing a team and designing a training regime and, and building and, and missing being in the dugout. And, and I think he he just wants to be back. He wants to be coaching again. And, um, and Real Madrid, whichever way you look at it, whatever history you have with your club, if you have the opportunity to manage them, that is a, a very significant offer for any coach in world football. So I think it is something that's hard for him to turn down. It strikes me as well, Duncan. I mean, we talk obviously a lot um, about Jose Mourinho and ambitions, and you know what the future holds for everything else. But it does strike me it's, it, it was it's now nine years since he won the Champions League with Internazionale, and we know that that fire burns deep within him to equal the record of um, being a coach who wins the Champions League with three different clubs. Real Madrid would be probably his best bet you'd have to say. But his ambition is beyond that, isn't it? Because obviously, um, in the time that he's uh, been gone from La Liga, um, Barcelona have returned to be the dominant force in terms of winning the championship there as well. But the Champions League's got to be something which Jose's looking at and thinking, well, with Real Madrid, you know, there might, I might have to compromise a bit because we know that Florentino basically has a massive influence on transfers, but it will give me a very good opportunity to restore myself to the very top of European football. I think, I think the domestic title is the priority. Um, you've, got, you've got to look that Madrid have only won two of the last six Spanish titles, um, and they do want to um, take that away from Barcelona and get back to the top of the La Liga uh, table again um, and finish the season at the top of the league, La Liga table again um, but yes um, obviously Mourinho wants to win more Champions League you know he wants to he wants to throw the criticism down the critics throats and what better way than of doing that than winning the Champions League again and winning titles again at, at Madrid or another club so I mean it's been clear from what he's how he's talked about his future and clear from rejecting opportunities to make huge amounts of money elsewhere. You know, we, we, we told you in the podcast he rejected an offer of 35 million euros net per year for three years to coach in China, which is unheard of money for a coach. It's clear that what he wants to do is to get himself in, into a club where he can win again. And, and remember, 
this is a guy who is obsessed with winning. One of the, the, you know, there are lots of elements to his management and lots of elements to his success, but I think the overriding factor is he expects football clubs to be organised with all their intention to win titles and is prepared to do whatever he can to set football clubs up in that way. Not just the players, not just the coaching staff, but the clubs. Um, and, and that's what's driven him to be so successful. And clearly it hurts him when he, not only is he not winning, he doesn't have the opportunity to win because he isn't even in a dugout anywhere. Um, so you talk about the risks of going back to Madrid. I think you're absolutely right. There, there are very significant risks of going back there, but there comes a point where you take the opportunity that's in front of you. We're going to move on to last weekend's action in the Premier League, Duncan. Um, fairly predictable results, generally speaking, but we want to speak just a little bit about that most weird of all species, the goalkeeper. And having watched both Hugo Lloris uh, concede a ridiculous goal uh, for Tottenham Hotspur um, and then uh, Dean Henderson, the online goalkeeper from Manchester United at Sheffield United, uh, which allowed Liverpool to maintain their unbeaten run in this year's season's Premier League. I was kind of reminded by, and I'm sure you were too, Albert Camus, probably the most famous intellectual goalkeeper there ever was, a man who famously said that all I know most surely about morality and obligations I owe to football. Um, and I was just wondering, Duncan, do you think it was Camus that both Henderson and Lloris were thinking about when they were considering those ridiculous goals and thinking about their existentialist uh, role in the game with regards to the absurdity of being the guy who is the custodian of the goalposts? Well, I think it's probably unlikely that Dean Henderson was thinking about all that. <laughs> Hugo Lloris is French, football. though. So maybe yes. he was. <laughs> I think it's probably unlikely Hugo Lloris was too, but I, I think there's a slightly higher percentage chance there. What I would say is that if um, Albert Camus had ever had to play under Pep Guardiola, it would be very interesting to read the kind of philosophy he would come out with um, having put under the pressure that modern goalkeepers are put under because of that Guardiola mentality of having a, a, a ball-playing goalkeeper and um, telling your defenders to to knock the ball into the goalkeeper when there is an element of risk involved. And, and I think, you know, we, we see the, the, the damage it does to both defenders and goalkeepers on a regular basis, that, um, that principle of playing that way. Um, some interesting statistics of Manchester City came out this weekend talking about the, the number of big chances, as uh, Opta defines them, that... Um, that City have conceded um, relative to other teams in the league and, and they're extremely high. And it's obviously because of the high-risk um, defensive strategy they use and, and attacking strategy, which is to throw so many players up the field. We you know we've talked, pointed out, and fortunately it's now become accepted parlance in the Premier League of the, the, the tactical fouling methods that, that Guardiola uses to protect his defence because he throws players so far up the field. Um, 
some statistics on how good Ederson is at saving those big chances um, and how that, that's you know kept Manchester City um, in a position of supremacy uh, in the Premier League while while playing that way. But I think you see if you you've got to have really really good players to get away with it, um, and if you do it with a slightly lower standard of player, then you end up conceding silly goals. The Dean Henderson one obviously has nothing to do with Guardiola whatsoever. That's just um, rank bad goalkeeping. And um, um, as Chris Welder said afterwards, he failed to reassure his goalkeeper that he was going to let him off for that. He just simply said, "If this guy wants to be as good as he thinks he is, he has to concentrate better." Yeah, um, and I, I mean, you saw quite a lot of Manchester City fans bemoaning the fact that it always seems to happen to uh, goalkeepers against Liverpool, and, and you do have to say there's been a, well, here's, a huge, Duncan, here's huge stats. number. Eight goals from directly from goalkeeping errors since the start of the 2018 season, Liverpool FC. Five uh, from uh, direct goalkeeping errors for Everton and five for Arsenal. Manchester United were fourth with four. So there is definitely a trend here that Man City fans might want to complain about. Yeah, and you would expect uh, those numbers to be Manchester City at the top in terms of the team that creates the most chances and attacks the most. You know, Liverpool do attack a lot. They they do create a lot of chances. They are going to force errors, but you know, it's almost you go back over some of the ones we've seen, the Jordan Pickford um, one in particular. They're, you know, they're not done under pressure. They're just done. Some of them have just been done out of sheer bizarre stupidity in the part of the goalkeepers. And um, and Liverpool have been fortunate enough to benefit from them. Well, listeners will be pleased to hear that I can confirm that an appeal has been lodged with the Premier League that Liverpool should be deducted two points for the win at Sheffield United by Duncan Castles, Esquire, um, on the basis of the amount of goalkeeping errors that have led to points gained. So let's just see if that appeal is upheld. We'll keep you updated. This is Monday's podcast, so we're going to go straight to heroes and villains of the last few days in football. And um, interestingly, Duncan has not chosen Dean Henderson of Sheffield United. Duncan, who's your hero of the week? Uh, my hero is a, a nameless designer at Puma, the new kit manufacturers for the Premier League champions who um, came up with the rhubarb and custard FC um, away kit that Manchester City so proudly displayed at um, Everton at the weekend. I think that's a, a, a true mark of genius on any designer to be able to get a club and, and a group of footballers to accept to play football in something um, as as much of a monstrosity as, as that um, strip is, and I'd be interested to see how many how many um, how many Manchester City managed to sell. Is that something that goes well on the beaches? That's rich coming from a Dundee United fan because I've seen some really dreadful Dundee United away kits in my time. Probably not you as bad as the rhubarb and custard, but anyway, definitely not as bad as the rhubarb custard. I presume you're referring to the Jackson Pollock. Yes, I am. Yes, that one's quite special here to say. If only Jackson Pollock had actually designed it, it would be of some value, but uh, <laughs> not 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 in my household, but somewhere else probably. Um, very good. Um, so I've got the villain, um, and I'm going to reverse the villain to be villains uh, this week because I would like to nominate as the villain villains of last weekend the brilliant volleys scored by El Ghazi and John McGinn 
for the Birmingham side. They were sensational. If you haven't seen them, I urge you to get on to your social media uh, platforms and just please just search McGinn El Ghazi. Two very, very subtle and genius-like touches of the ball. Uh, Volleys both to um, earn that draw. With that, we will wrap up this particular Transfer Window podcast. I would like to remind you that our next podcast this week, of course, is Your Questions Answered. Um, I'm sure you've got lots of topics you want to discuss. So please do uh, get your questions in, but also um, to continue the debate on this particular podcast, uh, you can go to our at transfer podcast Twitter handle, or you can contact Duncan and I directly, Duncan on at Duncan Castles and me on at Garbo SJ. And as you know, we'll be delighted to um, engage in debate with you with regards to things we've discussed. And hopefully we can give you some more information as well ahead of Wednesday's podcast and your questions answered. As ever, we ask you if you've liked what you have heard, then please log onto iTunes, give us a five-star review. We can uh, enlarge the community, enlarge the debate. And of course, that makes it better for everyone. Until Wednesday, I will just simply say, we shall see you through the transfer window. Thanks for listening.